Good morning, everyone. I uh, I thought that 9.30 Al-Anon meeting, I thought maybe no one would show up and David and I could go to breakfast this morning. <laughs> but it's good to see all of you here. My name's Terry Williams, and I've been a member of Al-Anon since uh, October 17th, 1983. And uh, I'd like to thank the committee for inviting us here this weekend. Uh, I've always wanted to come to the old granddad, and I certainly didn't think this was how I was going to get to come to my first one. Um, it's been it's been great to be here. Uh, all of you have had a have a wonderful hospitality. We've got a wonderful room, a great host sort of this weekend, and um, good to see our old friends and to make new friends. And and so it's lots of fun to be here with you. Um, I'm a member of Al-Anon who happens to love Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I was raised on the big books of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I was told and, and taught that the 12 steps of Al-Anon are important and are going to be a part of my life, and that if I'm going to find out about those 12 steps, I have to read the big book. And there's also something in there that tells me what I need to do for every occasion. And uh, this morning it tells me um, to tell you what it used to be like and what happened and what it's like today. So for about the next hour, I hope I'll be able to do that for you. Um, I was raised in a small town in southeastern Wisconsin. I'm a Yankee. <laughs> and uh, Tim's not sure how he ended up with me. He thinks anything uh, north of the Red River means that you're a Yankee. And uh, I'm the youngest of, of three children. I have two brothers that are six and eight years older than I am. And I was raised in a home that had no alcoholism in it. And uh, I hear a lot of things today about families with alcoholic personalities, but I've lived in a in with people that are not alcoholic and people that are alcoholic, and they're two different kinds of people. And I think that alcoholism was not really a problem because sometime around the age of eight or so, we used to have wine at holidays, and my mom would get out the good tablecloth and the fine china and celebrate the holidays, and we'd have real glass of wine. And I think I was around eight years old, and it was dinner was cooking, and it was time to open the wine. And it had been in the dining room cupboard for a while, and they couldn't remember when they had bought it. And they didn't know if they had bought it last year or the year before. And they weren't sure it was any good. And nobody wanted to try it. And... Since that time, being with alcoholics, um, I've come to realize that, first of all, that one would not have been that old. You know, it wouldn't have lasted a year or whatever. And if it had been, they certainly wouldn't have discussed drinking it. So I don't think that alcoholism was really a factor when I was growing up. Now, um, I, had those, uh, I had those two brothers that I was telling you about. And... You know, they they were older than I was, and they were always doing exciting things. You know, they had the two-wheel bicycle when I still had the little tricycle. And they got to go out and have paper routes and 
go to uh, camp and they got to go to high school and you know they were always they were always ahead and they were it that life was more exciting. I knew that what they were doing was more exciting than where I was and I wanted to do that. And I knew that my life was going to start and was going to start getting more exciting when I got my two-wheel bicycle. And then I knew it was going to be more exciting when I got to go to high school. And for some reason, I never could catch up with them. And it never, never occurred to me that I never would. But I kept living out in the future thinking that, you know, five years down the road, Life was going to start. Uh, you know, another five years and life was going to get more exciting. And as a result, I never lived in the here and now. I never lived in the present. I was always anticipating the future. And, uh, also growing up, I don't know if any of you remember those Doris Day Rock Hudson movies. You know, but they were wonderful. You know, Doris always looked great. You know, she always had a great dress on, and uh, uh, she was always falling in love with Rock Hudson, and he always looked real handsome, you know, with a suit and tie, and they were sipping on their champagne, you know, and falling in love. And Or they would have uh, uh, brandy in those big glasses, a little bit of brandy, and, and, you know, and I thought that that's what it meant when you got old enough and you fell in love, you fell in love over the champagne and over the brandy, you know, and you had the right glasses for it. And uh, I never, I didn't, I didn't think there'd be any, any problem to that. And, and life would begin, would begin then. And, uh, and it's a shame because it's never, it never turns out the way you think. Even Rock Hudson never turns out the way you think it's going to be. <laughs> so, um, I grew up in this, this fantasy world, and uh, I grew up in a good Christian home. We were Roman Catholics. We went to church on every Sunday, every holy day. Um, I learned to say all the prayers. I went to a parochial school for 12 years. I learned how to do things right. Um, I learned in, uh, in school, I was one of those kids that if you just... Um, let me sit in the back of the room, give me the directions to follow, and leave me alone, I'll, I promise I won't cause you any trouble. You know, if you don't want me to chew gum, I won't chew gum. If you uh, want me to get my work done on time, I'll get it done on time. Um, but just please, you know, I don't want to be singled out. I don't want to have to go to the blackboard, because then you'll know that I'm really, I really don't fit in. I'm really not that smart. Then you'll find out. You know, one of my biggest fears was the spelling bees that we used to have. You know, I used to beg God, standing up there, that I would not be the first one that couldn't spell a word. You know, and, and I still can't spell today, but it, at least I know where the dictionary is. Um, but I, I, and these and these were people that I went to school with for 12 years, and yet I always felt like I never fit in with them. And it was a small town, and I didn't, I didn't like living there. You know, I grew up in a town that had about six or 8,000 people, and I didn't like it because everybody knew everybody. And uh, they knew who I was and where I was from, and I didn't like that either. Um, 
I knew once again that if I could leave that town, things were going to be okay. Um, the one thing that I, I thought growing up, I really didn't think about having a career or anything, but I thought about just getting married and having kids. I thought that that was what you did. You know, you, you got old enough and you fell in love and you just, you settled down and had kids and lived happily ever after. Well, sometime around the time I believe I started high school, and uh, they didn't tell me this in that, in that Catholic church or in that school, but I, uh, I came to the conclusion that um, God was busy, that he was tied up a lot, um, and that he had given me, at the time of my birth, a package. And in that package was all the uh, intelligence and all the common sense and all the skills and all the things I needed to get through life. And that it was now my responsibility to open it up and to get on with my life. Because, you see, God was busy out there in the world. God was busy with the crises in the world. Um, I grew up watching the uh, evening news and watching how many people had been killed in Vietnam that day and watching the racial riots on TV and watching the assassinations and, and learning about all the bad things that were happening that God was really tied up with and that there were more important things going on. And somewhere along that time, I kind of blocked all, all, the, all the other things I had heard about God out of my life, and I decided it was time to get on with what I needed to do. And I'd been told that I could be anything or do anything I wanted, and I took that to heart, and I decided that that's what I was going to do. Um, about the time that it was, I was ready to graduate from high school, and I'd had trouble getting dates, so um, my best friend finally fixed me up, and I realized that I probably wouldn't be getting married right away. I hadn't met the right guy. So I was going to have to do something else, for, you know, to fill in the time until he came along. So uh, I decided to go away to school. Um, I, I grew up in this small town, but about 30 miles away was the city of Milwaukee. And Milwaukee was a big city. And I went to school there. And when I got there, I decided that nobody knew me and I could do and be anything that I had always wanted. You know, that my life was now going to start. And one of the things that the, uh, the state of Wisconsin did for me when I turned 18 is that it turned back the liquor drinking age to 18. And when I went away to school, you know, it was party time. And the people that I went with uh, liked to drink. And we, you know, and I had, and I knew that I had finally grown up and that life was beginning and that now life was going to be exciting. And that, and so drinking became um, a part of my life. It became a part of what my friends and I did on weekends and, and when we got together and when we were going to have a party or when we were going to do anything. And it was perfectly natural and perfectly normal. Um, I got into... Uh, uh, relationship. I, I finally, I finally got a boyfriend, and, and you know, it took me forever to get one. But when I get one, I couldn't get rid of him. 
and it would be good for, you know, a month or two, and then we'd continue it for a year or two. And so, you know, as a result, I didn't have a lot of boyfriends, but, you know, we hung it in there good. And uh, I finally got one who was exciting. You know, he was different. He was um, from another country. He was from another culture. He had another religious background, and we got real sick together. Um, I learned in uh, in that relationship that if I could just prove to him how much I loved him and cared about him, you know, then there was something I wasn't doing right because he was always jealous. He always accused me of doing things. And, and I remember sitting in in his apartment in a chair, and he would just be ranting and raving in that apartment. And I would be crying, and I would think, you know, I, I did, there was something I hadn't done right because, you know, obviously if he knew how much I cared, then he wouldn't be acting this way. And so I decided it was my fault. Now, I didn't learn this in my home. My parents um, were married for 40 years before my father passed away, and I never saw them yell and scream at each other. But I had already uh, started to get very sick, and we got very sick in this relationship. And we would break up, and we would go back together. And we would break up, and he would call, and we would cry, and we'd go back together. And we did this for about two years. Uh, at the end of that time, he finally graduated from college and went back to his home country. And uh, I think if he hadn't, we might still have been doing it. You know, we just couldn't quit. Um, I had been, I had been going to school during this time, and I would, I kept trying different things in school because I thought. You know, if I got the right job and the right career, you know, then it would be okay. Now, I don't know what I thought was going to be okay, but I knew that whatever was going on in my life just wasn't enough. And so I kept going back to school for whatever, uh, for a different, for a different uh, degree or, or something different. And I would be working full-time, and I would be going to school, and I'd be having these sick relationships. And so I was kind of busy. And about the time that Phil and I broke up, I decided that probably I had been drinking too much. You know, we were out every weekend and getting drunk and doing all those things. And I decided that probably uh, if I, you know, went out with my friends that two drinks was enough. And that uh, that was all I really needed to have. Now, when I got to Al-Anon and I heard um, speakers in open AA meetings and I heard AA speakers, I thought, you know, I used to get drunk. You know, I can relate to that. I used to do that. And I thought, well, maybe I'm in the wrong room. And uh, I shared with a, a friend of mine in AA, and she said, well, well, what did you do to quit drinking? And I said, well, I decided that I had been drinking too much and that I would just have two drinks if I started to drink. And she didn't understand that. I... <laughs> And she said, and you never drank too much again? And I said, no. And she said, I don't think you're alcoholic. I said, um, About that time, I met the most wonderful guy. 
and he was mom and the American flag and apple pie. And he was, I mean, he was a really sweet guy. And we started to go out together and we would go out now. Milwaukee's a big beer town. They have a lot of breweries and I never really did like drinking beer. It kind of fills you up fast and makes you burp and, and I had a hard time drinking it. And, uh, so when we would go out, he would, you know, we would buy beers. And my beer would sit there and get kind of warm and a little flat. And you know, he was so sweet. He would have his beer and he would notice that mine was still there and it was time to get another one. So he would finish mine off so that I would always have a nice cold beer. Now, wouldn't you fall in love with someone like that? And I thought it was great. I mean, this was it. This was it. Um, now, he had some problems. There were people that did not understand him. He had trouble at his work. You know, he had trouble with school. He was going to school at that time, and he had professors that, did, you know, that really didn't know anything. They really didn't know much. He could, you know, he was much brighter than that. And, you know, so he had some really kind of heavy stuff going on. Um, that winter, uh, Milwaukee had experienced about, oh, it was over a month of below zero weather. I mean, it was cold. And it was nasty. And I've never liked cold weather. And it was, uh, it was Easter time that spring and you wouldn't have known it in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, it was still, it was still bad weather. We decided we were going to take a little break over, over Easter. So, uh, we went down to the state of Missouri. And we got there and it was, it was spring in Missouri. I mean, it was beautiful. The trees were in bloom and the tulips were up and the air was warm and sweet and it was just like paradise. And we decided that that's where we needed to live. So we went back to Milwaukee, and a month later we moved to Missouri. And uh, the only problem with that, my mom and dad didn't seem to understand that we were going there and we were going to live together. And my mom never really could understand that. You know, I did my best to explain it to her, but she was kind of narrow-minded about it. But, you see, I had a plan. I knew that um, we were in love. And, but you don't want to marry the wrong person, right? You, you need to live together first to make sure it's okay. And I knew that was going to take about a year for us to decide whether or not it was going to work. Now, when you're in love and you, and you have that, feeling for each other, there's not a lot of things you have to discuss. Because I understood him and he understood me. And, you know, we were just fine. We were wonderful together. So we moved there and uh, we moved in together and set up house. And it was about five years later that I realized we still hadn't gotten married. And it was about that time that I decided that I really wanted to get married, and I didn't want to pressure him into it. I just merely uh, suggested that we either get married or forget it, 
which was entirely up to him. And so we went ahead and got married. Um, now, the wedding was beautiful. You would have loved it, you know. Um, I had a beautiful dress. Flowers were lovely. We had a champagne breakfast. I mean, Doris would have been proud. That was great. And uh, I thought it was real classy, you know. It was kind of small, and it was really, really nice. And uh, we, uh, since, since we were both Catholic, um, we decided, uh, or I, I, I knew we both decided, we were going to get married in the church, and the Catholic Church has a class for you to take before you get married to make sure that you're getting married to the right, you know, that you're doing it for the right reasons and that it's going to work out because they don't like divorces and stuff. So we took our class and they gave us our graduation papers and said we were great, you know. And I believed them, you know, we were. Now, we were also the oldest couple in the class and I wasn't born yesterday. I knew what they wanted me to say, but, you know, we were good. Um... We got back home after the honeymoon, and um, we had we had quit. I had quit going to church for a long time before we had gotten married, but I had joined the church so we could get married. You know, and I knew that now life was going to begin because now we were married, and uh, we were going to start our family in another year. You know, you have to wait a year after you're married. We didn't have to discuss that either. And... Um, you know, we were gonna get we were gonna get started, and we got back to our home, and you know, he even went to church with me the first two weeks on Sunday. I mean, I said, "This is it, you know, we're we're going, we're just just going to be it." Now, uh, uh, we got married in October, and there's a there's a holiday in October called Halloween, and that's when we got married. And they should have told me something. And uh, shortly after Halloween, there's another holiday in November called uh, Thanksgiving. And uh, I was excited, you know. I had uh, I was brand new bride, and I had the turkey dinner ready to go, you know, and the dressing and the cran- uh, the cranberries and the pumpkin pie, and um, it was going to be real special. You know, I had the wine, the new, we had new wine glasses, and I had the wine on the table, and we were going to have this great Thanksgiving dinner. And there was only one little problem. Um, I put the turkey on the, on the table, and he came to sit down, and he was drunk. And, uh, I noticed he was drunk. And it was, it was the middle of the afternoon. And this is our first Thanksgiving together, and he was drunk, and he could not eat his Thanksgiving dinner. And I looked at him, and I thought, my God, what have I done? I said, I have married an alcoholic. And uh, I didn't know what to do. Um, You see, I didn't even have all the thank notes written. And I thought, what am I going to do now? I thought, you know, God had played a trick on me. And uh, that he had waited until I got myself into this marriage that I couldn't get out. And uh, 
now he's putting screws to me. And then I was stuck. And I remember sitting there and thinking, uh, looking back at the five years we'd been together. And, uh, I had forgotten that when we moved in together, he bought a uh, six pack of beer every couple of days. And then he had changed to buying a case and a couple of cases a week. And the way we explain that is that it's cheaper by the case. And I'm a thrifty kind of person. And I understood that. And that was logical. And, uh, uh, we had had separate accounts and bought things separately. And I used to like a gin and tonic once in a while. So when I'd go to the grocery store, I'd get a bottle of gin and some tonic. And maybe a week would go by and I'd decide that, oh, it's a big enough for gin and tonic. And I'd go in the cupboard and there'd be about an inch in the bottom of the gin bottle. And I remember thinking, the only thing I remember thinking is that, well, he drank the gin that I bought. You know, it never occurred to me to think about what he was drinking. So my solution was, he can go buy his own gin, I quit buying it. Um, also during those years, we had worked different shifts, and I had worked uh, an evening shift, 3 to 11, and he worked during the day. So most of the time, uh, when I got home at night, he'd be already in bed, and I'd be asleep when he'd get up in the morning, and then I'd be gone before he got home, and he'd be in bed again when I got home. And so we didn't have to see each other about one or two nights a week. And we got along great. And one or two nights a week, um, if you're an alcoholic, I understand you probably don't, you're not going to have to get too drunk. But before we got married, I had changed that job because I was going to do this right. And I was now working during the day. And I was working Monday through Friday during the day at the same kind of hours that he was. And I soon realized that if you're drinking alcoholically, you can't stay awake and sober seven nights a week. And uh, that became, became obvious very quickly. That was in that, that was in November, and by March of the next year, it was only a few months. Um, I knew that we had to do something. You know, things were not working out. Things were not working out, and um, I couldn't. I really couldn't believe that I had married an alcoholic at first. You know, I really couldn't believe it. I knew that his father was an alcoholic. You know, we had talked about his alcoholism, and that was pretty obvious. And um, I'm a nurse, and I, I know what alcoholics look like because um, because I used to take care of them in the hospital. And alcoholics are the ones that come in um, with cirrhosis of the liver. And they, uh, there's a color of these, these flowers up here. They're yellow. And they, they look like they're nine months pregnant, whether they're male or female. And they die. And uh, alcoholics come in and they have DTs, and you put them in leather restraints, and you close the blinds 
because I can't see things outside the windows. And alcoholics come in and they have wet brains. And they have to be led by the hand down the hall and be fed. And those are alcoholics. And I did not marry an alcoholic. And uh, I had forgotten that a few months before that wedding, we had ended up in an emergency room at the hospital, that he was um, sick and thought he was having a heart attack. And when they let me go in to see him, um, he was sitting on the edge of the cot and he was crying and he was saying he was alcoholic. And I said, no, you're not. You know, you're not alcoholic. You drink too much sometimes, but you're not alcoholic. Because I know what alcoholic looks like in most my youth. And I had no idea and no conception of the first drink and the end and what happens in the middle. By March of that next year, um, he came home one night and I told him that he was alcoholic. And that I'm, I'm a bright person. I've got a college degree. I read Ann Lambert's every day, you know. And Ann says, if you're an alcoholic, you need to go to AA. And uh, I had called AA that day for him. And they told me when the meetings were. And they also told me um, that there was a, an Al-Anon meeting, which was, you know, was for me. I was just, I was the wife, the supportive wife. And that there was a meeting that night at 8 o'clock. So when he got in that day from uh, from work, I told him he was alcoholic and that they had an AA meeting at 8 o'clock and an Al-Anon meeting that I could go to and that we were going to go. And we did. You know, I made damn sure he got in that car with me and went to that AA meeting. You know, because I didn't really trust him to send him out by himself. And we went. Now, we went that week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday night. And Al-Anon was very nice. Um, they were nice ladies, and they, they acted like, you know, they were enjoying what they were doing, and I thought it was just fine, you know, and I thought, well, this is real nice. And I'm sure that they need this a lot. And um, that weekend, he was in an automobile accident and ended up in the hospital. And he was in the hospital and had surgery. And when we got home from the hospital, we never discussed AA again. And nor did I find it necessary to discuss that either. Because after all, now that he'd been there for three meetings, he knew he was alcoholic and the solution was not to drink. It was very obvious to me. Now, if he wanted to go to AA, that was fine, but, if, you know, he he wasn't going, so evidently he didn't feel the need to do it, and that was okay, too. And uh, I'd been to Al-Anon, so that was, that was fine. I had done what I needed to do. And I never saw him take another drink. And um, for the next few months, I started to go crazy. Because, you see, he wasn't acting right. But he wasn't drinking anymore. 
I never saw him take another drink as long as we were together, and I, ne- I couldn't figure out what was wrong because he looked funny, and he was acting funny. He was acting kind of like he was when he used to be drinking, but of course he couldn't be. And I thought that I had really lost it, that I was going crazy, that I had become uh, paranoid and suspicious, and that there was something wrong with me. And that went on for several months before I finally did realize that he was drinking, that I just never saw him drink anymore. And that from that point on, he hid all of his drinking. Um, that's when I started living two different kind of lives. And what I would do is get up in the morning and close the door on that house and go to work. And I would be this efficient, you know, smiling, laughing type of person at work. And, you know, people would say, well, how's it going, Terry? And everything was fine and wonderful. You know, I had this brand new marriage going and everything was wonderful. And then I would come home and shut the door. And um, it was real important for me. I got off work about 30 minutes before he did, and it was real important for me to come home and feed him. And I had to hurry and and cook as fast as I could something quick, you know, minutes, uh, meals in 30 minutes. You know, that was my motto. I had to get it on the table quick because by the time he got home, I had to feed him because uh, then it was my job to feed him and get him in his chair before he passed out. And that was a successful night. If I could get him fed in his chair and passed out by 7 o'clock, then we were okay. Then I could go back to the kitchen and clean up and take care of things and go back to my chair and sit there and watch TV and watch him for the rest of the evening. And, you know, I had I had the living room fixed on his chair and I could just look up and see him and the TV set at the same time. I never knew what I thought he was going to do. He never moved. But it was important to watch him. And um, I used to get real upset if he came home and passed out before he ate dinner. You know, I'd have to get mad and upset and throw the dinner out. Uh, I'd, I'd get upset if he ate dinner and didn't make it to the chair and ended up on the floor. I thought that was awful to have him laying on the floor. didn't like it. Um, or if he pat, we had one one bathroom house. If he passed out in the bathroom, it was very inconvenient, and that used to really, really upset me. But the worst part is when he'd come home and he'd eat and pass out in the middle of dinner, and I'd have to jerk the plate out from under his head and throw it away. You know, and he wouldn't use his silverware or anything, and it was just really disgusting, and I would be very, very upset. And then it was about 10 o'clock, so it was time for me to get ready for bed and go to bed. So I get ready and I go to bed, and then we start our nighttime routine. And he'd be up a little bit after that, and I could hear him in the house, and he would go to the other bedroom, and then I'd start listening for the the uh, pop top on the can. And I'd lay in bed, and I'd listen to that can pop open and then I'd start to cry 
and you have to cry so that he can't hear you. You know, don't want him to hear you. And um, I would listen for it, and then it would, um, I'd get myself put together enough, I'd stop crying, and, and then I'd wait, and I'd hold my breath, and I'd, and then another one would go off, and then I'd start it again. And we'd do that, he'd do that, and I did that in two separate rooms till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And I'd do that for a couple of nights, and then I could finally sleep through it, because I was tired enough to sleep through it. And you'd get up in the morning and try to put some makeup on and look like everything was okay and go to work and shut the door again. And uh, don't tell anybody what's going on. Now, our family lay up a thousand miles away. They didn't know, have to know what was going on. We didn't have any friends. I didn't really realize that until I got here, but we had no people that came to our house. And so we were by ourselves. And that's what we did. And when I left in the morning, I'd go and, and everything would be fine. And when I'd come home at night, then we would start living like that. We did that for, I don't know how many months. Uh, another year. And I got sicker. And I started to have uh, physical problems. I started to uh, go to the doctor because I had trouble with my stomach. And um, I wanted to tell him about the chest pain that I kept having. And I couldn't tell him because I knew I wasn't having a heart attack, but I knew that he'd know something was wrong if I told him that. And so I couldn't tell him. And uh, I used to lay in bed, and, and you can't wish that your alcoholic is dead because that's a sin if you go kill him. Uh, but I used to wish that I was dead. Uh, I used to pray that if um, that if God was there, that He would just let me not wake up, because I just didn't want to. Um, I used to uh, at that time I was working in where I was driving a car from people's houses. And uh, I used to be on these little country roads, and I used to say, God, you know, if, you, if I just go around this corner, and uh, if there's just somebody that will run into me and kill me, that'll be okay. Um, or just hurt me enough to go to the hospital. You know, I don't care. It'll be okay. And uh, I just didn't know what to do. I, uh, called Alan on one time to see if they were still there, and they were still there. But I couldn't go. Um, I took out one evening, and I took out the um, kitchen knives. We had this nice block of knives that we'd gotten for one of our wedding presents. And uh, I looked at them, and I didn't know which one to use. Uh, I remember crying and uh, uh, kind of being out of control, and yet there was something inside that was real calm. And I thought, you know, if I just pick up one of those knives, but which one do I use? And I wasn't going to use them on him. I wanted to use them on me. 
But I was scared he'd wake up and catch me, you know, or save me, and that they'd lock me up. Um, I've been to psychiatric hospitals, you know, but I was always the one with the key. And I knew that if they caught me, you know, I was going to be the one with the armband, and that they'd never let me out. And I was afraid that they were never going to let me out. I was getting uh, scared to go to work because I wasn't okay at work anymore. Um, we'd have clinics and I'd have to leave the clinic and go to the bathroom because I couldn't breathe. And my chest was hurting and I felt like my head was going to come off. Um, I remember going from house to house and just kind of being there but never remembering how I drove there or how I got there or what route I took. And then I would just be sitting in the car crying. And I couldn't stop. And I was afraid that um, my boss at work was going to find out. You know, we were a small group of people. And um, that she was going to start noticing there was something very bad wrong with Terry. And that she was going to send me somewhere and they were going to lock me up. Um... I didn't want, I don't know why I didn't want to be, you know, in a psych ward, but I was afraid that if they put me there, they'd never let me out. Um, it was about a year and a half after that first Al-Anon meeting that I uh, came home from work one night, and I don't know why or what was going on, because it doesn't seem like there was anything going on that was any different. Um, he and I were talking about nothing, and nothing had changed. But that night, after he was passed out, I was in the bathroom trying to make sure I looked okay, because I was going to go to Al-Anon again. That was important for me to look like I was put together. I don't know why. I just thought that I needed to look okay. And I remember standing up in that mirror trying to decide if I would know there was anything wrong if I walked in. And I uh, I went to an Al-Anon meeting. And uh, it was two weeks before our second wedding anniversary. And my life was unmanageable. And there was only a small town we were living in. There was only one group, and it was in an old uh, old town, in an old downtown building, upstairs on the second floor. And you had to walk up these narrow flights of stairs with a little turn and a little landing, and I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't get up the steps, and I didn't know if I was going to make it. And I got to the top of the stairs, and the Al-Anon room was right there on your left. And you walked in, and there was one folding chair right at the door, and that was as far as I could get. And there was a table set up and chairs around it. And I sat in the chair, and I was trying to catch my breath. And people were talking to one another and laughing and having a good time. And um, I was just hoping one more time that no one would notice I was there. You know, if I could just stay in the corner and no one noticed and maybe I'd be okay. And there was a lady that 
sitting next to me, busy talking to somebody, and all of a sudden she turned around and put her face about three inches from mine, and she was smiling from ear to ear. And she looked good, and she smelled good, and she was pretty, and she she was so high, you know, and she was excited, and she was enthused, and she scared me to death. And, you know, and I'm trying to pull it together and, and smile and be sociable because evidently that's what this is. This is the social time before the meeting starts. So I'm trying to put it together and, and do it, you know, whatever that is. And they started the meeting that night and, um, I don't really, I don't remember thinking about it. I remember they read 12 steps at the beginning. And I remember they read that first step. They said, the minute we were paralyzed over alcohol in our lives, we'd become unmanageable, and I thought, that's it. And that's all I heard. Um, but that's what I was, and where I was, and I knew that that was me. And the next thing I remember about that meeting is that it was over. And everybody was gone except a lady that had been sitting next to me. And I was crying all over her. And I couldn't stop. And um, I remember one thing that she promised me that night. And she promised that I was going to be okay. She didn't promise me that he would sober up. She didn't promise me that um, I'd get my picket fence put in. She promised me that I was going to be okay. And I believed her. I believed her. And I drove home, and I cried all the way home. But it was different. You know, I felt better. It wasn't the hopeless kind of crying that I had been doing for so long. I felt better. And they had meetings at that group. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I was there every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And they must have talked about it in one of those meetings. I don't remember them. Um, something about a sponsor. And I don't remember what they said about it, except evidently that was what you were supposed to do. And so I asked this lady to be my sponsor. And she told me that I had to do certain things. She told me that I had to call her every day. But I had to read the ODAP book, the One Day at a Time book, and then I had to come to meetings. And she could have told me anything else she wanted to, and I would have said, okay. And never realized um, that I could, didn't have to do that stuff. I mean, she told me I had to, or she wouldn't sponsor me, and so I did it. Now, I don't know about she, but I was busy a lot, and I didn't know how I was going to do these things. You know, I was exhausted. It was hard work going home and keeping an eye on him. I, you know, and I was tired, and I didn't see how in the world I was going to get up an extra 30 minutes in the morning in order to read something and to call her. But I was willing to give it a try. And that's how we started. Now, she was also a big, um, a believer and a big fan of going to conferences and conventions. And she told me that that's what I needed to do. 
Um, in fact, she kindly so much that my first one I went to just shut her up. You know, I've had. It was like, okay, I'll go. And the first one I came to was here in Arkansas. It was at uh, Little Rock in the winter. And uh, I loved it. You know, it was wonderful. And uh, it was exciting. And I cried the whole weekend, you know. There's Kleenex coming out of everywhere. And I, I was in love with Parker. And um, that first two years, about every two, uh, first year, about every two months, we would go to the conference somewhere. And there would be a group of us who would leave and go together. And that was really, really important to me. Now, I had been here a few months, and I had seen the AA Al-Anon marriages, you know. And I thought that if I kept coming to Al-Anon, that he was going to have to sober up and go to AA. You know, that's what happened. I can tell. And they were, and every AA and Al-Anon marriage was perfect. I could tell that too. They were happy, you know, they were hand in hand, down the happy road of destiny together, and I loved it, you know. And I knew that if I would just stay here, you know, and keep coming down on, that it was going to rub off, and he'd love it. And uh, my sponsor told me that I was supposed to um, pray about this marriage. And then I was to ask for God's will to be done for him and for me, and for God to show me the truth about the marriage. Now, I didn't have any trouble doing that. You know, I'd had, I'd had trouble when we first started talking about God and first started talking about praying. Um, I didn't want to do it, and I had a lot of trouble doing it. But, you know, I, I had, I was finally okay, and I could finally start praying. And, I had started seeing enough, knowing enough, that I was starting to believe that maybe God was okay after all. You know, because when I got here, I hated him, because I didn't trust him, and I thought he was, like I said, just putting his boots to me. So, when we started talking about praying about that marriage, I thought, there's no problem. You know, God's will is obvious to me that he wants you to live happily ever after in that marriage. And so that was no problem. And I had prayed that prayer for a month and had no idea that, that, uh, it could go either way. I mean, I just knew we were going to be, be this happy couple. Um, I went to that, I kept coming to conferences and, um, somewhere along in those, in those months, after I was coming to Al-Anon, he did start to go to AO meetings. Um, by that time, we had started a, a separate Al-Anon group. Too. There were two different groups going in town, and he went to the other group. And uh, I got I got really excited about that. Um, but before he had before he had started going, he had gone on a binge. And 
I had never seen him go on a binge before. He had never, he had never done that. He had always been able to go to work in the morning. And he started on a binge that lasted five days where all he did was to get up and drink until he could pass out. And he did that 24 hours a day for five days. And I didn't know how he was going to get to it. Um, my sponsor told me that I had to let him go do that if he needed to do it. Um, she also told me that I had to give him permission to drink in the house in front of me if he needed to do that. And I had a hard time. Um, I put that off for a while. I was willing to do some things, but not everything. And finally, I, uh, I told him one day, I said, you know, it's okay with me if you, if you drink and, and, you know, put your beer in the refrigerator or whatever you need to do. And he looked at me and he said, I can't. He said, I can't drink in front of you. He said, I'm ashamed. And, uh, we didn't talk much more about his drinking. But he went on that binge, and when he got off that binge, he decided that he was going to start going to AA. And he would go to AA, and every two weeks he would come home and get drunk. And then one, uh, the day I came home, and I, I found some of his trips, you know, his 60-day, his 90-day trip. And I got real angry, <laughs> real angry. Uh, I thought when I got here that I wasn't angry at him, you know, because that's not acceptable. You know, you can be upset and you can be hurt, but you can't be angry because um, that's not okay. And um, I had forgotten those nights when he was passed out in the chair drinking when if I had had a both bar back. You see, he'd had knee surgery, and I heard a lot about his knee pain. And I used to think, if I had a baseball bat, you know, he thinks he has pain now. I didn't want him dead. I want him crippled in a wheelchair. And I remember the night that I found him in a blackout and a teetering on the top steps of the basement stairs. And I thought, no, no, no. You know, one little flick is all it will take. No one would know. And I could just go on to bed and check on him in the morning. You know? See if I call the ambulance to the undertaker. It wouldn't make any difference. No one would know. I didn't do it. I didn't, you know, I pulled him off like he's supposed to. Send him off to his chair. You know, but I thought I wasn't angry. And, uh, he made me look at that. I went to the uh, first Coast to Butte conference that year, and I loved it. I had always wanted to go to the mountains, and it was, it was as beautiful as, as any picture I had ever seen. And I was stark raving crazy. You know, I'm glad I didn't know all that, but I was nuts. And when I got back on the plane to, to go back to Missouri on the way home, the plane was delayed, the luggage was on another flight. Um, everything was all mixed up and messed up. 
And I was on that plane, and I realized for the first time that it didn't matter what was going to happen to me, that God was going to take care of me. That God wasn't going to let anything happen to me that he didn't have a plan for or that he didn't want to have happen. And it was the first time in my life that I knew that God cared about me as well as you. And it was like God was just sitting there and playing with me all that time. And um, I got into St. Louis about midnight, you know, and had to fill out those forms for your baggage. And uh, get shuttled to the long-term parking. I was by myself, and I was okay. And uh drove another two miles to where we were living, and I was okay. And I knew that no matter what I found when I got home, that I was okay. And uh, something changed, and something happened. About a month after that, and it was August, and it was about eight years ago this month, and uh, I got a phone call at work, and it was from him, and he said, are you going to leave me? And he scared me to because, you see, I had never told him I was going to leave him. I had never left him on that. That was my biggest fear, that I would repeat what I had done in those other relationships. And I knew that if I left, I was going to have to stay gone. And so we had never talked about it. I had never threatened him to leave him. And uh, he scared me when he called me and asked me that. And I said, no, I don't have any plans to leave you. And that weekend, my sponsor uh, said, Let's, she said, there's a couple of us were going up to Hannibal. It's about three hours drive from where we were. And she said, there's an anniversary up there. And there's a speaker up there. And uh, she said, let's just go for the night. And I said, okay. And uh, I left the house and I said goodbye to him. And I said, uh, I'm going up to work for an anniversary and I'll be back sometime tomorrow. I don't know when. And that night after that, Peter got done talking. We were out in the parking lot. And in August, in Hannibal, and it was hot. And, you know, he laughed and I could tell, you know, what the weather was like. And, you know, the big lights and parking lots and the gardens were everywhere, you know. And we were out in that parking lot and there were three of us and we, we held hands and we prayed one more time in my marriage and for God to show me the truth. And do you know that God is everywhere? You know, they used to tell me that, but he was in Hannibal in the parking lot that night. And I didn't hear any voices, but I knew inside that that marriage was over. That whatever um, I thought had been going on, or whatever I thought it was going to be, was not reality, and that the marriage was over. Now, what are you going to do? You know, you've got this revelation from God, and what are you going to do? My sponsor was from Fort Worth, and she was moving back to Fort Worth. And she said, well, you can come with me. Now, I'd never been to Fort Worth. And I know what Texas looks like. I've never been to Texas. But, you know, I know that it's kind of flat and they have some cowboy in And a few rattlesnakes. But not much else. You know? Not that I have, you know, contempt for investigation, but 
But I knew what it looked like, and I had never even wanted to visit. Um, now I knew that's not what it looked like, but that was my idea of Texas. And, uh, she said, you know, you're welcome to come with me. And, uh, that was on Saturday, and, and we got back Sunday. And I knew he wouldn't be home, and I got my clothes out of the house. And Monday morning, I quit my job. Um, Wednesday night, I was in the car, and I was on the way to Fort Worth, Texas, and got there first night. My family thought that I had, my brother thought I had joined a cult who wasn't sure what was wrong with me. My mother, when I called her, she said, my God, she said, I thought you would never leave. <laughs> but I had the wrong number, you know. I thought, this is not my mother. I don't know how I got to Fort Worth except that God sent me there. If the sponsor I had only stayed a month and she was gone, she went back to Missouri. She was going to try it again. I don't know where she is today. You know, and that's scary. I know that we go back where we come from if we quit doing the steps and working this program. Um, I know that she spent a year going through track therapy at one point, and I hope that she's okay today. Um, but I know that uh, God put her in my life so when I needed her. When I got to Fort Worth, I got a place to live in about two days. I started going to meetings there, and I thought I had to, I'm going to have them. They had meetings every day of the week. You know, it was wonderful. Um, I got to go to an open AA meeting, and I got to go to the last of our meeting. And um, it took about three months, and I, and I ended up with a job that I, that I had no idea I could do. I thought for a long time that um, that God was working very well, taking care of a lot of areas of my life, but that my job was an area that I could handle. And he ended up giving me a job in an operating room. Now, I want you to you know that an operating room is totally different from any other kind of nursing that I had ever done. And that God came with me every day, you know, for for a long, 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 long time. Because... Um, it was so different, and I was so scared most of the time. And you taught me how to go to work, you know, and how to be with people that are just crazy, you know. There's lots of personalities in operating room. And you taught me how to go there and, and to work with those people and to be okay. That, uh, that divorce and that husband took a year. You know, like I said, I can't ever get out of it. And uh, it took about a year. But when it was over, it was, I knew it was God taking care of me. Um, what my life is like today is, is so unbelievably different from what it was when I came to you. Um, there is no way to describe how it is. A promise that um, was made to me, and it didn't come from the little book, and, and I don't know how she how she knew, but but I was told that 
the guy will reach the desires of your heart, uh, or he'll change those desires. And uh, I didn't understand that. You see, my left had uh, my pet husband, my left had home, and uh, I left a dream. And uh, all I had ever wanted to do was be married and have a bunch of kids. And uh, I was afraid and I knew that if I left him, there would never be any children. And uh, I'm kind of crying crying about it, but um, what happened is I cried for a long time about it. And I realized, finally, that God has planned. You know, and I sit in meetings now, and uh, I've been in town not meetings recently where we've talked a lot about the children and the uh, alcoholic children and the problems we're having with teenagers. And I realized that... Um, God probably did me, you know, a wonderful thing. <laughs> um, but I also know that he took well the pain. And he made it okay. He just made it okay. And that's been one of the biggest miracles for me personally that I've had. After I got to Fort Worth, I ended up um, meeting a good friend. And uh, we got to share a lot of things. I got to share with him and be with him. And I had met him before at conferences. And in fact, he was a speaker at the first conference I attended. And I always thought he was, always thought he was funny and that he was special and everybody loved him. And I knew, you know, I mean, I loved him because everybody loved him. And, um, he was from Fort Worth and I got to know him when I got there. And we got to be friends, and we got to share different things. And um, what God did was give me my best friend. I had no idea that I was going to be blessed with marrying my best friend. And uh, God has blessed us with four and a half years of a wonderful marriage, and that's been a result of this program. And what she taught me is that where to put my priorities today. And uh, I know that I cannot be number one in Jim Williams' life, that God is number one, and AA is number two. 
and without those things that we cannot have a marriage today. But I know where I fit, and I remember too. And that's been a blessing that she's given me. You see, I don't have to worry about being everything to someone anymore. That God gets to do that. And God gets to be born for me. And it has to be that way or it isn't going to work. We do have an AA on our marriage today. And it is not one um, that anybody thought was going to work. Everybody thought we were ridiculous. And we stirred up the country a little bit for a while. But the wonderful thing about the program is we have short memories, you know. And there's always something else to talk about tomorrow. I've had a wonderful life since I've been with you. I have been to more places, had more friends, met more people, shared more, felt more than I have ever imagined in my life. And that's been the bonus of this program. Dave and I were talking, we don't know why. People come to Al-Anon and they can't stay, or they don't want to work sick. You see, Al-Anon saved my life. But more than that, Al-Anon can change my life. And I'm grateful for that today, that my life is different. And it's different than it's ever been. It's better than it's ever been. And it does get better every year that I'm here. It's not perfect. There's lots of things that have happened since I've been here. My father passed away about a year and a half after I was in the program. But when I got up there, there were flowers in my group. You know, that was really special. Um, to go through some physical things and health problems. I've had a little bit. Jim has a little more. You know how AA is off. That's a little more. Can't get too much attention to that one. You have to have a little more attention with AA. So we get to do that together. And you get a little rough and you get a little rocky. You know, they, they give us a lot of promises. They talk about fear, financial insecurity will leave you. And we get to go through that. You know, terms and sales and sales go up and the sales go down. But God has always provided. God has always provided for us. He's given me a lot more than I could ever have dreamed. When that promise was given to me that first night that I was going to be okay, that was an understatement. It always changes around me. And it goes up and down. And the world goes up and down. But I'm okay. And I'm more than okay this morning with you. I'm grateful to be here with you this morning. I want to thank you so much for inviting us to be here, to be able to share with you. It's, um, I want to come back some more. Uh, we've had a wonderful time with your granddad. Can't believe that this is how I ended up here for my first time, but it's not going to be my last. 
I love all of you. Thank you very much.